Hello and welcome to Juggling Podcast number 30. My name is Luke Burridge and I'm recording this back in Berlin. Yep, finally home after uh, eight weeks away on the road. Uh, Paula's not with me at the moment. She's uh, in Aachen today and probably be coming back at the weekend. And also, sorry about no podcast for a while, but you know, like I say, we've been very busy over the last few weeks traveling and things like that. So we'll be updating all of the news for the end of our trip in uh, in next week's podcast. Should be getting back to weekly podcasts now for the autumn. And uh, yeah, because Polar's not here, I've decided to release something that we recorded at the EJC. Again, without Polar, this is actually um, a discussion with Joost Dessing about the uh, human body movement science behind juggling and his research and the kind of things he studies. So we'll get that to that straight away, I guess. This was actually, the, the whole uh, discussion that I did with Joost was uh, about an hour and 25 minutes. So I did that cut out a lot of stuff that didn't directly relate to juggling, things like um, virtual reality, the equipment that he uses to uh, to do all of his measurements and other things as well. So he cut out quite a bit of it. So hopefully you enjoy what's left there. Um, I certainly did. It's about an hour and five minutes worth of discussion. But uh, stick with it because it's really, really interesting. Enjoy. Right, joining me now for a, a discussion on the science of juggling or the, the body movement science of juggling is a scientist because I could talk about this by myself, but... Hey, what are my qualifications? So with me is Joost Dessing. Is that I got your name right there? My name is Joost Dessing, yes. Joost Dessing. Okay, so Joost, um, just tell us a, a bit about yourself. Like, uh, you're a juggler, of course, and you're also a scientist. So tell us how you came to be those things. Yeah, so I, uh, I started studying human movement sciences in Amsterdam in 1996. And there I saw a guy juggle, and I was amazed by it. I wanted to really, yeah, really be better than him, basically. Um, and I was really amazed by it. And I started uh, started learning myself to juggle and um, yeah from there I went on to uh, to more more and more juggling uh, I had an injury at that time which sort of uh, f- prevented me from doing other sports so I could focus on the juggling and of course the human movement sciences study that I did also um, the interest that I, ha- that I have in human movement uh, yeah the juggling is a bit related to that of course as well uh, but only after a year I really got to like enthusiastic about the science so about the uh, the human movement science sciences and and that's when i sort of also picked up the scientific interest in juggling the scientific interest in the coordination of movement uh, where juggling is a very good example of a, a simple yet complex skill yeah it sounds a bit contradictory but uh, it's simple enough uh, to study because we can do it in a laboratory but it's complex because understanding how jugglers, jugglers juggle the way they do is it's, it's very very complex. Well, we'll get onto that in a, in a bit as well. So uh, just just to say, just uh, what are your qualifications then? I mean, what level of academia are you at now, or whatever you want to say in that way? Yeah. So I uh, I did my PhD. I, fi- I finished my PhD two and a half years ago. So I'm I'm now 29 and I'm I'm now a postdoc uh, researcher in Amsterdam. And uh, yeah, I'm a PhD. That's my, my qualification. And you studied for your PhD? Yeah, my PhD was on a neural dynamics underlying interceptive actions. That's actually the title of my thesis. An interceptive action is where you move your hand to intercept a moving object. In other words, catching. Catching and hitting, for instance. That's also an interception. So sports like, uh, like a sport like baseball is a very good example of the kinds of movements that we're interested in. Of course, we study them in laboratory situations. So we're not, we don't go into the field, but, um, but we create sort of abstract versions of those kinds of tasks uh, and constrain the movement uh, the the participants in our experiments in such a way that we can try to yeah, understand what it is they do and how they do it uh, yeah 
Well, that's cool. So, uh, just to say, a uh, setup for this, what I was actually wanting to do was do some different debates, and I was going to debate different topics here at the EJC, and like, you know, art versus sport and that kind of thing. So, uh, uh, and this was going to do a, be a debate because uh, Yo said, hey, I'll, you know, I like this, uh, this topic, the science of juggling, and let's debate that. The thing is, uh, after we chatted about it, but we realized that doing a, a debate on using the scientific method and applying it to juggling. Well, what were we saying, really? It's like the, a debate has to use evidence and logic, and if someone is against the use of ev evidence and logic, we can't really debate them very well. So, so it's just going to be a discussion, really. We're just going to go point by point through some of the things that Yoast studies and some of the questions that people will have and actually talk more about the evidence behind good practice of juggling and things like that. So, uh, first of all, actually, could you just say, what do, when you say when we say the science of juggling or the human movement science of juggling, uh, what do you mean by science? So we, we study how, how humans coordinate their, ac their actions, their movements, and uh, the signs that the things we study is we, we study how the movements evolve over time, so, uh, and how uh, patterns emerge, patterns are, that are present in the movements. Uh, so uh, it's typ uh, typically a cyclical movement, uh, juggling, you, uh, you cycle your hand, and um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, research on, on that kind of coordination, and also bimanual rhythmic movement, bimanual cyclic movements, which involves two hands. Uh, and there's also a lot of research on, on eye-hand coordination, on uh, yeah, how you use information that from, from your eyes to, to coordinate your movement. And, and juggling is a perfect example of a, of a task that combines all these aspects, which makes it yeah, particularly interesting, I think. Cool. So when we're saying science, we're not meaning sight swaps. We're not meaning the the numbers behind you know how gravity works and things. It's specifically about you know uh, how how your brain and your arms and your hands are all connected together to make you into a good juggler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My, so my my topic of, of study in uh, in Amsterdam is really how the brain controls actions, basically, and. Um, uh, so I work on, on neural network models of, uh, yeah, a sort of abstract representation of, uh, of how the brain might work. Well, that's cool. So I'm just saying that, you know, that's what we're talking about with the science. But when we say what's non-scientific juggling, you know, or the, the non-science of juggling, you, you had some sort of examples of, of, of people who, who don't care about evidence. Because that's really what science is, isn't it? You sort of come up with a, uh, like a theory or hypothesis and you get the evidence to back it up or disprove it, so like falsify it as well. So uh, just maybe talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I'm... I'm not. I'm not saying that they don't care about it. I'm just yeah. saying that uh, there's a lot of expert jugglers out there. Um, uh, I overheard a workshop yesterday uh, by Thomas Thomas Dietz, uh, and he he has some very good uh, advices, I think, on how to practice. But Thomas has it from his own experience and maybe from the experience of other people. Yeah. And a lot of the times, uh, these kinds of these kinds of things, these kinds of uh, advices that uh, that he comes up with, yeah, work for him and work good enough for him but they may not be optimal so whenever you go and write a book or uh, make a dvd that is instructional i think it's it will always be a personal view on how to do things and i think there's also another way to go and it would be the scientific method is really studying uh, studying how you could best do a training session how you could best yeah set set things up such that you get, get better at juggling and i, th I think not a lot of work has been done on that, so how you can improve that? Well, one of the reasons for this, I've actually uh, talked to some people and they said, oh yeah, we did this at college, it was part of like a, like a college um, project that I was working on. And I, and I said to some people, okay, you're going to learn to juggle and you have to juggle exactly 10 minutes a day and you've got to do it in this way and then come back and, and at the end of it. And someone else had to, you know, other people had to do it, well, just an example, not listening to music and other people listen to music. And it's like, who is going to learn to juggle three balls quicker? They had like, you know, 100 people in each group. But the thing 
thing is people got into juggling and they didn't want to just spend 10 minutes each day and they they wanted to do more so it's it was seemed to be so much more just down to personal motivation than it was actually the the, the technique that they use for learning so that I, I think that's a, a big thing it's like a lot of times you know what's best practice what's not best practice is is down to sort of like personalities and uh personal preferences in a way yeah definitely I, I, I do think that um, there's been a big study in Amsterdam uh, uh, a guy really tracked uh, people who couldn't juggle and he taught them to juggle and then looked how they progressed over time and he really had to uh, had them come in every day to do a certain amount of practice and yeah really had to stress them don't juggle at home because yeah he could see these people getting enthusiastic about it and some people didn't of course so some people sort of well, they were discarded from the the experiment then. no 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 some people didn't juggle at home so oh. they, they, they 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 came there only to juggle and then one I think once a week or so once every two weeks they did a measurement so like a, a recording of the juggling uh, of the ball motion of the yeah. movement of the center of gravity yeah all kinds of mo- all kinds of movement recordings uh, and some 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 more motoric tests so um, uh, yeah how fast you are at flipping some things around and stuff yeah. like that there's some some basic tests and to see how that changes how that improves uh, over and and does it improve does b- being a, a good juggler or just learning to juggle actually improve i mean it's a big question but does it actually improve your hand eye coordination does it improve your like your rhythm and timing and things like that uh, for juggling, yes, yeah. but the, yeah. So it, I say for juggling because it's for juggling. And the, the improvement uh, in general does not transfer to other tasks. That's what I at least uh, know from uh, from the studies I've read. So this is this is conclusion for this for this discussion. Conclusion number one: learning how to juggle does not make you better at dancing. It doesn't make you better at golf. It doesn't make you better at playing the piano. It's it's a skill that sort of is separate from other parts. It's a or skill mathematics that mathematics for the for the uh, for that matter. So some people have, have said that it's yeah related to mathematics as well. As what, so learning how to juggle makes you better at math? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's the same brain area that does it, and and uh, yeah, that's. But the studies show. The, well, the studies show that it, that's not the case. I mean, that's really just not the case. Uh, also, yeah, well, there's this one one famous study. I think it's about two years ago. It was studied in in uh, uh, published in Nature, uh, which showed for the first time also was a was an important study in it yeah. set by itself. It showed uh, an increase in uh, in um, gray matter. I think so yeah. in, in cells, number of cells. That's that's what I think happened in an area that is related to the integration of sensory uh, motor uh, sensoric events and motor events and this was the one that sparked all the things oh juggling increases brain size yeah yes exactly and and I I think a lot of people by using that reference got uh, got a lot of grants from uh, from uh, some kind of government uh, educational thing yes stuff like that and uh, yeah well for that it might be a good thing but I mean it's it's completely I wouldn't say it's it's nonsense but it's not a special thing that something something changes in your brain if you practice I mean that's so things change in your brain if you bash your head or no if you drink too much and things like that, isn't it? So it wasn't that juggling is particularly good for increasing brain matter. It's that was just the the, the motion that they used to actually study the juggle, uh, study the brain size. Yeah, they they, they studied they they used juggling as a tool, and th- that's it. I mean, and and also, I mean, the thing the thing that changed was an area that is related to the things that, that are going on during juggling. So you might uh, yeah, there might be a bigger area, but you cannot cannot use any of the increased size, whatever it is you use of that, but. Um, you cannot it is not helpful in any other task so let's so let's just say this conclusion number two juggling learning to juggle and juggling does increase your brain size but only the part of your brain that controls juggling 
Exactly, and it's only uh, the increase is so small. You have to use a very high, high definition. Scan. They never told me that. They just because I thought, wow, I'm, I'm juggling, I'm getting more intelligent all the time. But it's sort of like zero point zero 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 one percent of brain matter increase or something. Of a very small area, yeah. yes. <laughs> of a tiny, tiny area. Oh well, that's that's quite disappointing. But this is interesting. So let's uh, uh, move on. Uh, yeah, just a, a few things that you were saying about like um, uh, just go to, just go back to this point. Non-scientific juggling. I've been to to workshops. You said. I've been to two workshops with very well-known jugglers. One was Sergei Ignatov, and another one's Victor Key. Um, Sergei Ignatov, while you know his his techniques actually made my juggling, specifically my club and ring juggling, really improve quite a lot. Um, whenever I asked, well, whenever anyone asked, well, why do you do it this way? His answer was because this is the way I do it, and that was the way he was taught. And he was taught by you know Violetta Kiss, who was a, herself a fantastic uh, juggler who was trained by Francis Brun. And you know that you can actually track back who trained who all the way back to people like Enrico Restali and of course it's the right way because it's the way that the best jugglers juggle but the other workshop that I went to was with Victor Key and every every single thing that he said you know and someone asked well why do you do this and he had a really good reason to back it up it wasn't just because that's how he was taught how that's the way he he does it one thing was that he said okay we're going to do three ball juggling and we're doing we're going to concentrate on the aesthetics of juggling so it's got to look good and so you, I want you to juggle it low and wide and someone asked why do you low, low and wide I you know Sergei says you should do it up and down motion and he just says well then you can see your face you know then the audience can see your face if you do a low wide pattern and everyone's like oh yeah there's a good reason for all of this and the reason why Sergei Ignatov juggles very much up and down is because the balls that he uses are huge big rubber balls aren't they yeah, well, yeah, that's that's a very good example of two completely different different approaches to yeah. uh, to a training to a, to learning the skill, and I think both have aspects that that are helpful, as as you said, both have helped yeah. you. Um, I think uh, when you when you when you take a, a strategy of of getting a getting a well known juggler, a good juggler, to teach you, and then to pass on that knowledge to another juggler, yeah. so keep on passing on the knowledge uh, and adding your own thing to it. Uh, that's a that's a very good strategy. Even better would be if you add information that you gather from all other kinds of things. So yeah, that's what I was saying. Because the thing is, is like if you want to juggle big balls, and uh, you do Sergei Ignatov, but if you want to juggle sort of like the Russian balls of the field, you know, uh, uh, Victor Key's technique is much much better. So what I'm saying here is that the this the, the scientific approach to it isn't just going who's the best juggler. I'll learn their technique. It's it's more to sort of pick your pick your data. You know, pick the advice that you go for. Actually. Again, if we're talking about the science of juggling, Occam's razor is a good one, isn't it? They, you know, it's it's not always the simplest explanation for something. It's the simplest explanation that takes account of all of the data and and, and all of the evidence, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a very important principle, and it's yeah, it applies to my my, my own work as well. I just finished writing an article. Yeah. Hopefully, it will, it will get published sometime, uh, where I uh, sort of well, I attack the editor, so it's going to be a bit <laughs> it's going to be a bit strange, but a bit controversial. Yeah, indeed. But uh, so, what did the editor say? Uh, not nothing yet because when I come back from the EJC, we're gonna send oh, it in. Okay. So yeah. But anyways, uh, uh, basically, the, they have a theory, we have a theory, and yeah. we try to back it up with as much data as possible. And yeah. they just don't care about that. Oh, even though all the all the data is pointing in one direction, they're just going, no, we'll just keep with our theory. No, yeah, it's it's a bit more complicated than that. But it, basically, we we try to constrain the model we have. So yeah. so basically, form the model on the basis of a lot of other data than they are yeah. using. So they don't just don't care about that. It's like we use data from brain recordings as well, yeah. and they they don't care about the brain basically. So specifically, let's just go straight to this thing. First of all, what was what was what's your position and what's your department that you that you work at at the moment? 
Uh, I work at the Faculty of Human Movement Sciences in uh, on, on the Free University of Amsterdam, uh, in Amsterdam. So tell me, what you did your PhD? What was the subject of your PhD again, and what was the conclusion? Yeah. So th the topic of my PhD was the neural dynamics, so the brain dynamics underlying the control of of interception, underlying the control of catching movements. Basically, that's the most important part of my thesis. And uh, the main conclusion, I would say, is is that it's very uh, likely that uh, in catching a ball, uh, uh, well, maybe put it slightly different. Um, a lot of people think when they, when they, uh, they, for instance, think about making a robot that catches a ball. Okay, we need to have a have a camera that analyzes the movement, uh, that, that records the movement of the ball. Then we need a computer that calculates and predicts the 3D trajectory of the ball, and then we need to define a th an interception point where we then move in the appropriate time. And that's not the way people are doing it, in, in my, my opinion. And what do you mean? That's not the way people are doing it? That's not the way that humans catch a ball? That's not the way, in, uh, yeah, that's not the way humans catch a ball. So I would say you're not just predicting where the ball will be and then moving there. Uh, it's, it's more likely uh, that there's a sort of continuous process going on where you continuously update your movement, not on the basis of a prediction, not on the basis of continuously updating the prediction as well, but on the basis of continuously yeah, generating uh, adjustments in the, in the commands you send to your muscles that end up at the right place at the right time, such that your movement end, ends up at the right place at the right time. So we don't so if I throw something in the air and I look at it and I follow it up and it coming, coming down again and I put my hand out, yeah, but I close my eyes, before I put my, put my hand out. That has to be a prediction, though. Yeah, that, that has to be a prediction, but there is various ways to do that. It, 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 is, it, it's, it becomes sometimes a bit of uh, how you define something as being a prediction or not. So it's, uh, it's a very... Uh, um, yeah, how do you say a thin line? Um, okay, so it's not like a single prediction. It's sort of like a, a progressive prediction, if you know. Well, for instance, if I if I if I um, perceive the position of the ball and I perceive the velocity of the ball and I have a, a concept of how long it takes for it to get down for uh, for the ball to get down yeah. to uh, yeah, a certain area, um, you could use all the all that information uh, to predict where it's gonna be. Now, if you close your eyes, all the information is gone. But if you then assume, well, let's assume that the the position position uh, changes with the same velocity it had before and stuff like that, you can make a, a, pr a prediction also on the basis of absent information. So, uh, so it's, you're presuming that it's, it's going to stay the same and then your muscles move to where you presume it's going to be. Well, yeah, there, there's dynamics in the brain. So uh, the brain, uh, the activity in the brain, uh, yeah, it, it, does, it is not a, an on-off system. There, uh, it continuously changes over time. And that change over time can also be used uh, to, uh, to fill in the gap of, uh, of, uh, yeah, of absent information when you close your eyes, for instance. I mean... Sorry, so, so I, I guess we understand that, but so how did you test this? I mean, what did you do? Did you, did you um, make people catch balls that weren't going in the same direction? Well, for w one of the main, main observations that leads to this conclusion um, is an observation that was, was first done, uh, first done in, uh, by a lab in, uh, in France, uh, in Marseille. And they, they had people, uh, uh, they put the hands of the people at the position where the ball would end up. Uh, and then they had the ball approach this uh, this position just on a linear track. This was a laboratory experiment. Uh, approach that position uh, with a constant velocity under an angle. So not so if you face straight ahead, under an angle would be a bit from the side towards okay. this. Uh, towards so a diagonal. Yes, exactly diagonal. And what happened then is that the people move their hand in, in a considerable number of trials, uh, like 40% or something like that. They move their hands away from the correct point yeah. and then back to this point. 
oh, so they saw the ball coming and they didn't. It, the brain didn't tell them originally that it was actually coming towards the hand. They just noticed it was moving, and then the brain went, oh no, but it's actually moving towards your hand. So move your hand back again. Yeah, well, at that point, it wasn't moving towards the hands anymore because it had yeah. moved moved yeah. away. Was so yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that, that's typically an observation. That's a very strong suggestion that is not uh, an a priori very accurate prediction that uh, yeah. that they're making. They could be making an updated prediction the whole time, but these were linear constant velocity uh, movements. So the, yeah. these were not complex trajectories in any way. I've I've done the, the same experiment myself with uh, balls suspended on a wire, so with pendulum, uh, basically yeah. a pendulum movement. Which so it, it doesn't just go straight down. It sort of accelerates and swings at the same it swings, time. It swings towards you and, and, and also that, that trajectory when you look at it it, it, it optically is also much different than uh, uh, than a linear a linear trajectory and, uh, and it, that, that generates also differences in the hand movements and we understand why they happen. Uh, we've, we've, yeah, we've come up with a model basically which could sort of explain uh, or describe the, the, all the aspects of the movements that we have, we have observed. So, uh, so, so can we apply this to juggling anyway? I mean or, do, or is it just that you should you shouldn't be trying to track each ball you should sort of go go with sort of like open eyes or with an open mind and just be aware of things in your peripheral vision i'm not entirely sure how we could apply this to juggling well that's that's a topic actually that we are uh, we're studying at the very moment oh this is your current study well we well uh, a phd st- student uh, in amsterdam is now studying basically uh, the yeah the the role of gaze and uh, gaze direction and gaze depth so how far you uh, we're, we're talking like gaze as in looking rather than homosexual yeah yeah <laughs> G- gaze direction so yeah. the looking direction uh, of uh, so where your eyes are pointing basically or the intersection of where your eyes are pointing which is the gaze uh, gaze depth a typical uh, observation in juggling you see that all the time is that uh, beginners uh, look at the ball separately uh, when they're about at their peak yeah they flick their eyes between the tops of the ball yeah something like that and uh, and a lot of the, uh, the expert jugglers don't they just gaze through the pattern and uh, this was actually a, a almost annoying thing when, when they were first doing these experiments in Amsterdam with eye movement recordings uh, uh, of expert jugglers I mean the, the guys would just be yeah closing their eyes all of a sudden or <laughs> and they're just not even looking not even needing not, not, to see not even paying attention to anything just looking away and and, and I mean the, these were trials of course that were discarded but they yeah, and they did that of course to annoy uh, to annoy us but uh, <laughs> yeah these these are the things that, that go on and what what has been observed this is not for for three ball juggling but for uh, I think uh, one 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 handed uh, throwing so just one just throwing and catching throwing and catching of one ball is that um, and that's also an interesting thing actually that uh, well it's very relevant to the this discussion uh, is that a lot of people tell tell you when you l- l- w- tell other people when they teach people to juggle look at the top of the pattern yeah, so look at when the balls are at their peak, um, but that would mean that you, uh, when you juggle higher, you also look higher. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that seems to be uh, that seems to be a very good um, uh, advice because it works. But we, well, we studied that scientifically. With we, I mean colleagues of mine. I wasn't involved in that. Uh, that I was actually a participant. I think you were the juggler. I was the juggler. Yes, <laughs> um, one of the jugglers. And w- what they observed is that actually jugglers don't look, or, or the catchers, because you, these are not only jugglers, yeah. this is one ball, so um, many people can do that. Uh, they don't look at the top of the ball, uh, of, the, of the parabola, but they look at a certain time before they're going to catch the ball. Yeah. 
So it seems to be a time-related thing more than a space-related thing. So yeah, you have the spatial aspects of the ball trajectory where, you, where the advice would be look at the top. But what people actually seem to do when they, when they perform this task is they look at a certain time before they are gonna, they're going to catch the ball. And the time, I guess, is sort of relevant to how far away the object might be. So if, it's, if they know it's going to be a long way away, they, do they look earlier because they think they're going to have to reach further and take more time to catch? or is, what, I don't know what the evidence would say then. Well, th this study only involved throwing at different heights. So there were indicators uh, at which height they should throw. So I don't think really that there was a lot of change in, in uh, lateral, lateral distance where, where they had to move. I think this was just really throwing up and then waiting and catching again. This might have something to do with recently I've been working with um, uh, a ping pong ball on a ping pong uh, on a table tennis bat. So just like uh, and, and when I noticed that when I smack it really really high, the ball goes flying up in the air. And uh, the thing is because it's spinning because the ball spins because that's what you know it's a, it, that's what these table tennis balls do. You know, spin and they have curve on them. So it goes up in one direction. Then it, as it's coming back down again, it sort of curves back round. And I've noticed that if I try and look at the top of the ball, I get no. I have no idea where the ball is going to come when it comes down because it's not like you say. It's not this continuous smooth motion or, or, or smooth acceleration straight down to the centre of the earth. You know, it's, it actually sort of swings out to the sides. It comes down. So I've actually found that I don't. I don't need to bother looking at the top. It's actually there is a certain point where I guess my brain just picks up enough information so I can put the bat out and bounce it again at the right point. Yeah, exactly. This is a typical example of a trajectory that is unpredictable enough for you for it not to be an optimal uh, way of uh, optimal to look at the at the at the top of the pattern, yeah. the top of the ball uh, ball motion. And uh, yeah, it would be very stupid to do that because yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't tell you anything. Normally, with normal juggling, balls are heavy enough such that the air friction doesn't influence the uh, uh, the ball trajectory that much so because uh, this influence of the spin yeah, yeah. comes due to the air friction and it, yeah for normal juggling that, that that is not the case and then actually when you mathematically analyze uh, yeah the pattern then looking at the top will give you a lot of information because you look at the at the pattern when the ball is, is sort of stationary in the, in the upward direction so it's not moving a lot uh, you have an, an idea about the time it took for it to get from your hand to the, to that which should be constant no, no well the, the time from the throw to the to the zenith to the top yeah as it's coming down yes I mean constant not not always constant I'm sure it, it should be the same going up as it comes down so your brain has a as exact halfway reference point to when it'll be back down to hand level again exactly exactly so that that, that was also the theory uh, that uh, my professor Peter Bake uh, in Amsterdam he uh, yeah he initially had that idea as well so that that would be the ideal point to look at and when so do we have a conclusion here I mean where when we're juggling say three balls or five balls or seven balls where should we be looking or is the, or is the, uh, the evidence not in on that point? Now, I would say the evidence is not in because we've studied this only for uh, I think two in one hand juggling and 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 one in one hand juggling or yeah. throwing throwing and catching and well I think for instance when you go to four and five balls it might be a bit different I mean yeah. there you might be more focused on the spatial aspect of the pattern because there's just too many balls and you you're more focused on on gazing through the pattern so not not looking at the different balls but gazing through the pattern yeah. and and then at the point which gives you the best information about yeah. the 
mo the pattern of motion of all the balls. Yeah. That's that's. So it's like, how, where can you look to get most information about most balls most of the time? Yeah, something like that. And and uh, well, and that's certainly not the top. No, I I think well, but that's not scientific. So, but I think it's going to be somewhere like in in the crossing point of the two uh, two uh, parabolas, something like uh, something uh, about there. So it's going to be underneath the zenith, and maybe at the crossing point. I don't know. Uh, we, we but again, there's that's what we're saying now is just we're just inferring from, but we're not actually. Uh, we don't have the data of this. So this is being unscientific. No, but we are. Well, I mean, this these are ideas that we are actually exploring at the moment. This yeah. uh, this PhD student was going to study this, but we tried to. Uh, well, we went in a slightly different direction, uh, which is why we why we didn't do this. But uh, well, when I have the time, uh, which may be the problem actually. <laughs> you don't have the time at the moment. No, I have a lot of other things to do as well. For me, actually, juggling is uh, studying juggling is a sort of a side project. I got a I got a grant from uh, from the Dutch government, and I have to uh, focus on on studying of, of, of catching itself uh, and and that that yeah that's just a sli slightly different field than the study of juggling which I sort of do for fun to the side of it okay so let's let's move on there I guess we don't have let's go to some of these specific questions that we've got here first of all actually we oh, we've done brain size uh, we, you you said something the other day about throwers versus catchers you know some people say oh it's best to have perfect throws and other people say it's like don't concentrate too much on the throws you know if you're a good catcher you can get by as a juggler as being just a good catcher catcher making good if you've got long arms quick reflexes so is there any evidence one way or the other on throwers versus catchers yeah well that's that's started out actually already with the with the thesis of, of Peter Bake uh, my professor again um, uh, he, he had the theory uh, that jugglers what they set up what they call a spatial clock so they use a very stable timing of uh, the throwing and by doing that th they then uh, try to uh, throw at a fixed height as much as possible, and then the height dictates the timing pattern of the whole uh, of the whole juggling pattern. Of course, you still have the, the issue of, 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 of dwell times. You still they can still vary uh, in how long they have the ball in their hands. But uh, but s using these what they call anchor points in the pattern in the pattern of the ball uh, of the hand movements. So you, these aren't these aren't spatial anchor points. These are sort of like a point along the path where the hands move. Is that right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Sort of spatial temporal anchor points. But it is time. In that theory, it was timing related, and if you do that, then the only thing you need to do is uh, is correct for any small deviations in the in the in the tossing height by catching earlier or later, and does at a different position, and and that would yeah that would basically keep a constant juggling pattern going. So the idea there would be that that tossing accurate accurately would be uh, uh, is the most important uh, thing for juggling, and some people of course can correct very well, so they can catch quickly and move it move the hand back to the correct position to make the next uh, next toss and some people cannot so they uh, d there's there's definitely uh, people i think that are better at throwing constantly and b people that are better at at uh, yeah correcting by catching uh, uh, catching uh, better but they say that actually that when you make the models of actually how the, the brain is connected to the body and how your arms are you're all wired up together it's you're you're far far better to actually concentrate more on a, on a smooth rhythmic steady pattern than just throwing them all up there and seeing what happens yeah, yeah I would say uh, uh, doing it in a, in a smooth way 
and well-timed way. But that's of course sort of the goal of, of juggling. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's almost defining juggling basically. I think. No, I was just saying that because lots of people would say like, oh, if you're going to learn a number, you need to just do like work on like uh, like with three balls. You go throw, 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 catch, 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 and then and then when you want to do four balls, you oh, well four throws and catches the three balls. You suddenly realize that the timing is completely different. And I've noticed this with five balls when I'm teaching people how to juggle five balls. What I actually do is give them three balls and I get them to juggle three balls in quite a low and not too slow pattern uh, with another two balls or another one ball in each hand and I say when it gets to the point just flash them high enough so then you can throw the next two balls again and make all the catches but you have to be able to not rush the catch after the last throw, if you know what I mean. So when you're juggling to like three ball, three ball, three ball, three ball, three ball, three ball, and then you go like five, 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 and it has to be in the same in the same rhythm. And when I find when I say that to people, they they find their own height of the five balls. But if you're just going from a flash, you don't know what the height is, you don't know what the rhythms are. So I actually get them to set up a rhythm first and then get them to sort of start going up to a different height or, and, and the rhythm will dictate the height and now you're saying which is great for me that that's actually what the evidence points to as well yeah although yeah sure yeah. well sort of the, the evidence points to, I mean I was I was making sort of an inference about how I would how, how I would think but I'm saying that the models that you have the, the, the models that best represent the data you have also say that's probably the way that the, the body works well yeah setting up this rhythm seems to be a very uh, very good thing to do and um, um, yeah with with the thing the the example you give i yeah, I would I would add to that is actually that probably the height at which they're juggling, uh, or the frequency at which they're juggling, so the, the tossing frequency uh, uh, is not the same for three ball juggling as for five ball juggling. Yeah, that's why I say do do a, like a low, quite quick three ball pattern and then sort of spring them up. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. So uh, you you do you do have a difference in uh, uh, in juggling frequency between uh, optimal three ball juggling and optimal uh, or preferred preferred juggling in three ball cascade and preferred juggling frequency in the five ball cascade uh, but definitely setting up this rhythm or using uh, some kind of height indicator could also yeah. be a, yeah that's also a way to do it of course actually that's the two methods that we are using uh. okay so let's talk a bit about that because we mentioned this the other day it's like it for timing you know you you said it, it, the way that you do it in the lab and you want people to juggle at a certain rhythm because it's, it's easier to, to compare data I guess with with everyone juggling it with it with the same kind of rhythm of hand movement uh, you've tried it two ways one is by selling everyone to throw to the right height another way is to actually put like make a, a metronome click a uh, steady beat and get people to juggle to that and just tell me a little bit about your findings there well yeah that's uh, that study uh, what's been done way back in the beginning of the 90s I think so I wasn't involved there but uh, basically what 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 you would think is that if you set up a spatial clock by throwing very consistently uh, the thing we just talked about very consistently timed throwing yeah, to the metronome to the metronome would uh, yeah would be beneficial but only of course if you throw a co to a constant height so basically combining them would seem to be uh, the ideal uh, ideal thing to do would seem to be seem well seem to be because also you take away a lot of freedom of the juggler uh, by by fixing his sort of fixing his, his, his juggling frequency and fixing his height yeah you, you constrain his possibilities for adaptations and I think a lot of the and also these are all small also small adaptations, the ones you cannot sort of observe by just looking at the pattern. But only when you get it in all into into a computer. Exactly, when you make an accurate recording of the movements. Uh, I mean, we, we now have, have movement recording systems uh, that that can do uh, easily up to 200, 250 hertz. And the kinds of things you observe there, they are not going to show up in your eyes. You cannot you cannot see... The when you, wait a second, let me just let me make this clear. So you've got machines that measure balls as they're traveling once every... No, 250 times every second. 
uh, well, no, well, I was, I was, I was now referring to another kind of tracking system, which which has markers that you put on the, on the oh on the on the arms themselves. Yeah, yeah. So like the, like the things you see in uh, in these motion capture things that they use for 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 uh, film uh, film industry. Well, that's fantastic. Let's just move on a bit. We're talking a bit more. Uh, we're talking a bit about eye movement before, and I and I heard this thing the other day that if you actually look in one place, hold your head still, and you look all the way to the left, and then quickly sweep your eyes across to the right. There's no blurring of the vision. There's no sort of uh, you don't get a blur. You, your brain takes out the bit. It just goes, has a static image on the left, and then suddenly a static image from the right. And I, was, I uh, the question that I asked you was, uh, does this you know does this affect the, the the juggling in a way? You know, it's like how how much information are we actually missing out when we look around when we juggle? Um, so I guess it's like if I do a pirouette or something like that. It's like it, What's my brain? What is my brain doing there to uh, to get rid of that f- a sense of motion? Because when I'm doing a pirouette, I'm, I throw the ball up, I spin around. I don't actually have to even think about looking back in the right direction again. My, my I guess my brain and my body is just trained and it just knows exactly what's going on. It knows where the path is. So where's the reference point? What what you know? What's what happens when you sort of like look away and look back to a, a, a juggling ball? Say. Well, this is a very very interesting and scientifically complex question. So I yeah, I mean I I'm already going to say I cannot answer the question completely um, but w- well, what you what you talk about is saccadic eye movements eye movements that are very fast from one position to another that's basically also the goal of these eye movements just switches in position of uh, you don't care about the data in between do you exactly it's just a change in position of your eye movements and there's a separate system in your in your uh, in your brain uh, that uh, that controls these kinds of movements another 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 kind of movement is what they call smooth pursuit eye movements that's when you track an object so that's when you when you track an object that is that's moving uh, fluently and actually you sometimes also use saccade so when, when you track an object and you are actually too fast you make a saccade back to the object uh, okay. so there's him, these are tiny saccades not as, not as big as when you look from one from the left of your visual field to the right of your visual visual field they're very fast uh, very standard so the, the if you look at the, the profile the, the velocity profile of these movements they're yeah. very standard and you can easily detect them basically uh, which, which makes it also uh, uh, easy to analyze I think um, but in, indeed, in between, so when, when you make this movement, there's a, what they call a perceptual gap. So they've studied this, for instance, by uh, flashing a name or so during the saccade. So uh, I may, I, you look to the left of your visual field, yeah. and then you make a switch to the right of, the, of your visual field. And during that switch, I show you the name of one of your friends. Yeah. And you cannot uh, perceive the name. It's just not there at all? No, and it's, it's gone once you have taken the new position, and you, don't, you have, not, have no idea about the name. Yeah. You cannot report it. So, so where does that go? Or does your brain? just go don't need that yeah exactly if if the brain would ana- analyze that you would have all the blur yeah. and i mean analyzing all the blur making sense of that yeah. uh, it's it's only a very short time eh? it's just not worth it no it's not worth it it's it's probably uh, pro- evolutionary speaking that was not important for our ape ancestors yeah indeed i mean it's uh, probably the better strategy to 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 blink it out so to delete it it's still the question how how does that happen how how di- how did that evolve is still a very complex question but you can you can understand uh, on the basis of that why it may have not been so uh, a bad idea to uh, to block that out uh, yeah indeed but there's there's no evidence to say anything about that point in the in the in throwing and catching well if you look at juggling i mean uh, i think yeah i think maybe uh, uh, we talked about it a, a bit before uh, when you look at uh, beginning juggers so so yeah. um, uh, novices yeah. they um, they do make these movements left and right yeah. from uh, and and actually when you do side swap you also do it i mean sometimes people yeah, really yeah, they go up down 
down. Yeah, and so uh, so it gives you a lot of information, and you need it. So, I mean, you need to see the ball you throw high. You need to see the ball you throw low. I mean, some some people can throw like uh, some blind threes or so when they do uh, uh, a complex side side swap with five balls with threes in it. But uh, but most of the time, people do want to look at it, um, and it uh, it does help, of course. Um, now, what happens in the switch there? I, yeah, I'm not completely sure. I, I'm not completely sure whether how that how the same thing would apply yeah. to juggling here and, and also in the pirouette I think well during the pirouette I would say I wouldn't be surprised if indeed there's a lot of uh, yeah you don't focus on anything except except basically what you're saying having this reference frame you need to yeah. get back completely full circle yeah. and you need to have an idea about what the ball movements uh, well were before and then and then yeah, yeah. go on again after, after uh, the pirouette. Oh, so you say a reference frame. Uh, just one thing that I kind of—I did actually read your uh, PhD dissertation, or what you call it. Um, I'm not going to say the title again, because. Uh, but I, I also read that you there, there isn't just like you say before. There was this, this reference point, this anchor point in time. But there's also a, a place where your sort of perception revolves around in your body. Because um, normally people think, okay, so how close is the ball to my hand? And they move their hand, but you that's not a reference point. Then the hand can't be a reference point because it's also moving. But then it's like how close is it to my eye but can that be a reference point because your eye is also moving so is there any point on the body which your body thinks is that is me that is my center and uh, yeah maybe talk about that a second well yeah so I have to disagree with you on the fact that something that is moving that that cannot be a ref reference point no as I'm saying keeping track of the movement yeah. it can still be a, re a reference point and I think all these things you've just mentioned but are reference points yes but wait a second if, if something's moving and you're keeping track of the movement what is the reference point that you're using to keep track of that movement well I mean this is of course a very complex issue yeah. I mean how how do, how do these transformations occur yeah. how do yeah. they uh, t with, with transformations I mean yeah. I mean you get information from your eyes yeah. uh, and also also of course from the muscle sensors yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of things going on there yeah. and you basically asked me what's the what's the initial reference reference yeah. frame um, and I would say the world uh, so uh, yeah. that may be the initial or final. You, yeah. uh, it's probably a circular thing which yeah. you cannot define. I mean, you move in the world, and in the world there's a lot of uh, a lot of reference points that sort of define define a space. And our our world worlds, at least the the, the buildings we have, seems to, seem to uh, be pretty square. So there's a lot of <laughs> a lot oh, of so right angles. You, your brain tracks right angles. Well, I mean that sort of defines if you if you want it a Cartesian coordinate frame. Cartesian yeah. being just x uh, x y as I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, and you could use that. I mean, uh, if you were on the stage, the thing we yeah. talked about before, if you're on the stage, the, the audience, is, audience is in front of you. It yeah. would be, yeah, wise to define the lateral direction uh, parallel to the, the first row in the audience. Whereas when you have a circular, uh, circular audience in a, in a, in a, a circus, uh, yeah, it, you might not need to do that. So there might, might be a, some other way to do it. So I don't think this is a fixed thing as well. Uh, uh, it's saying a fixed thing, but like in, in martial arts, they, you know, these martial artists, of course, that's art, not science, but they always talk about sort of like the belly is your is your you know your center of gravity and things like that so i was just wondering is there you know is there a, a point that with with data that you can back up with data sort of like if so if someone's catching while their head moves or if someone's catching um while their body is moving or something like uh, do you understand what i'm getting at there it's just it's just is the, you're saying that the, the world is the reference point but i'm thinking is there anything inside the body that the that the brain says this is me this is where i am and this is 
you know this is where my hand has to be well i think that very much relates not relates but that uh, very much depends on uh, on the kind of task you're doing so i think this is very task dependent and i think you, you yeah you mentioned that you've read my uh, my thesis and, and actually the model that, c that i came up with uh, does use a transformation between different uh, different coordinate frames yeah. basically different ways of coding information about the ball movement and about your hand movements yeah. and the primary the primary um, coordinate frame uh, basically the coordinate frame that is needed to understand the patterns we see in the data yeah. is what they call a gaze uh, gaze centered uh, okay. core so, so it is is it where you're looking is the center where you are looking is sort of defines one of the axes of your uh, of the coordinate frame you're yeah you're using and uh, so where your hand is relative to your uh, to your eyes it seems to be uh, not to your eyes in your body but to yeah. the gaze direction uh, okay. seems to be important so if so if i'm so if i'm looking directly up and i throw a ball and then catch it and if i'm looking directly forward and i throw a ball up and catch it even if it's exactly the same throw my hand will move in a different in a different path to get to the same point might move yeah i'm, I'm not completely sure this is actually one thing we studied in this recent study on juggling where we had uh, expert and novice jugglers uh, uh, use a gaze through so they we they were not allowed to gaze at the balls they were uh, they had to look at a, a small dot this was actually the, uh, and is there, and, there's, and in these experiments are people sort of like heads tied down and they clamp like have to all sit exactly the same height in a chair and things uh, no no we we changed the heights of these of these dots uh, yeah. uh, we is uh, frederick reim uh, Fre this French student of, of me uh, and me, uh, cha we changed the height of the uh, of these balls on the basis of the eye height of the person. So we we, we made it relative ter to their body. But they were standing and they were they could move a bit. Uh, we told them to be stationary. Uh, we yeah we weren't gonna tie them down in or anyway. Uh, so it's not you know you're not going for that you know exactly everybody exactly in the same position in the same room with the same lighting. No no that, that's not the kind of, that's not the level of detail of constraints basically we want to have in our experiment also because it influences the way they execute their movements so much that you don't know whether you're studying their normal performance which is already of course a, a question you can have with a lot of the scientific uh, studies in in a laboratory is it is a laboratory study the same thing as the real real world and then what does that tell you about the real world uh, uh, given this difference um, but yeah so we studied uh, also um, juggling when you when you gaze above the pattern or juggling when you gaze below the pattern stuff like that so we cha we we varied that as well and also in depth so we had actually one condition which is very weird you can try it out yourself is juggling while you gaze at a position which is in front of the pattern so basically closer to your eyes go go cross-eyed and juggle Exactly, and you can do that, for instance, by having a pencil in your mouth <laughs> and looking at the tip of the pencil, which is like right in front of your nose, yeah. and then juggle in front of it. It's really weird. I mean, the first time I dropped after one throw. <laughs> so you're saying that? Uh, also, I guess this is, is this is another thing. Is like when you're juggling and you tip your head down and try and touch your shoulder to your ear, like tip your head sideways. Again, the same thing happens. People just drop straight away because, like you say, the reference point is the direction of the gaze. And if you sort of twist the direction of the gaze, it's like that. That's no fun at all. You can't do that. Well, that can be it I, I think yeah. the gaze direction there is important but also here the gravity plays a big big part I think in the, the, the direction of gravity yeah. I think is a very uh, so that's related actually to the uh, to the world-centered um, world-centered coordinate uh, frame the world-centered reference frame um, because gravity is is the thing that yeah that controls the ball motion when you yeah. when you're not uh, when you're not controlling it yeah. so having a reference uh, related to gravity is not so bad an idea it seems not to be so uh, so bad an idea yeah down is always down I guess exactly and actually I have this uh, the same thing when I uh, try to juggle blindly yeah. and you move your head suddenly so you make a sort of a twitch with your head yeah. you drop directly yeah. 
and that, that seems to be related for, for me in my experience seems to be related to uh, a, an experience of acceleration yeah. which makes me correct correct for a non-present acceleration of the ball oh yeah so so your brain is going acceleration acceleration is constant it's constant it's constant and you move your head and it goes it's still constant but it sort of it, it knocks out the reference for the ball as well yeah, yeah. although I think yeah yeah that might be one thing but it yeah. might be very hard to to distinguish that from from like a gaze a gaze yeah. uh, direction uh, point uh, so an explanation that's more related to yeah the, the experiment for that one might be a bit tricky <laughs> to set up exactly yeah well you could do maybe uh, change the direction of gravity I mean uh, <laughs> we could work that one out and um, also you said uh, I can remember you talking not not recently but you also talked about um, when people tracking motion of a ball they use the background uh, the ma- background image so if you like you say, you swing a ball down to someone in your experiment, and if you've got a moving background, a, a background that's moving sideways, that really does mess their up their movement tracking. Is that right? Yeah, that, that was one of the main main observations of the of the primary study of my of my PhD thesis is that we showed that uh, when you do this, when you have people catch balls and you uh, you. Yeah, present them with a uh, projection of a random dot pattern at the background and you move this random dot pattern so uh, without them knowing it they at some point of course know that that it might move um, but but still uh, um, yeah you move it relative to to the real world so it's uh, we just use a beamer and a moving uh, projection and they uh, uh, yeah they, they deviate their hand movements deviate uh, due to the uh, movement of the background so can they still catch though they can still catch the ball because and that's uh, for me understandable because they are continuously updating their movements so even if even though they deviate a bit they correct for that in a later phase of the movement yeah. uh, so when, once the ball gets closer you get a better idea of where the ball is of course better in, in the sense that uh, it's closer and you know its position uh, relative to you you know it better and uh, uh, yeah you can better estimate w- where it is so um, so you can still catch the ball I, I, I haven't analyzed the number of misses uh, in the yeah. two two parts but I'm off of my you head. should do <laughs> yeah off of my head I think there's no difference no difference really yeah I think yeah maybe maybe the initial two trials or so that's also an important thing oh yeah because it's a surprise for people exactly the, the, the surprise effect there uh, can be important but yeah one I think I actually had a couple of participants uh, uh, who didn't even notice uh, that the background was moving uh, in the first couple of trials, and they still caught the ball. So no, yeah, it wasn't moving very fast. So it's uh, but it w- it was a visual distraction. It was it was in the sense that uh, normally, of course, the background is stationary. But we told them just focus on the ball and catch the ball, and and that's what they did. And uh, and uh, yeah, we found actually that the hand movements deviate uh, due to this movement of the background, and that shows us that uh, that. That when they uh, when they control their movements of the uh, of the uh, uh, to catch a ball, that uh, we already knew that they are using position information. Where is the ball in space, um, and also where is it relative to the to the hand or relative to the gaze direction and uh, the looking direction. But we now also showed that uh, not only position but also velocity of the ball is used directly in into in this control because what is known about this manipulation of background motion of a, of a moving background is that uh, it affects the perception of velocity of the object so you think the object when you have a uh, an object moving uh, to the left for instance and you have the background moving to the right uh, you think it's moving faster to the left so you you put your hand further out to the left 
uh, well, when you have to catch it and it comes yeah. towards you uh, and it is moving also to the right and the background is moving to the left, then you think it's moving faster to the right. I was going to say, you put, oh, okay, so you move your hand, like that's what I was trying to say, yeah, you move your hand out to where you think it's, but then your brain naturally goes, no, no, not that far, not that far, and you can come back and then catch the ball in the right place. In, in the end, you sort of correct for it. Uh, and also in our setup, actually, the background uh, motion was only in the initial part of the movement because we cannot make a, uh, we cannot make a, a, a projection screen which can be completely behind the pendular, uh, yeah, a swinging, uh, swinging ball. It's just not doable. I mean, you'd, you'd need a, a virtual reality setup to, uh, to study uh, catching in that way. If you're juggling with gloves on, say, with, when, that's what people do with ring juggling, do you actually get a lot of information from your hands? I think a lot of information. About yeah. like so, how much is from your eyes? How much is from your the movement of your body? Or don't you know this? Well, I mean that that would be uh, an, uh, an even uneducated guess. I mean, yeah. uh, the theory says, or at least the uh, uh, the what we think is that initially vision is the most important uh, in juggling. Well, like ninety percent. Well, yes, yeah, you could put a number. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, sort of like you know, of course, by far its vision but you know it is actually sort of like catching it and the weight of the ball in your hand and then the throwing because it's it's because it, the weight of the ball in your hand and actually feeling where it hits on your hand does make a lot of difference to me when I'm setting up for another throw okay okay but you're an expert juggler so uh, the next oh okay the, ne <laughs> the next thing we were, we were gonna uh, I was gonna say is that that uh, as, as you get better and better yeah. you get to get to integrate all these these modalities so the vision uh, the yeah. perception of the, uh, the tactic uh, perception yeah. you get to integrate that better and that also means means that you can when you leave out one the other part can sort of take over which makes for blind juggling I mean it allows for blind juggling yeah I actually read a book once I think it's by Robert Silverberg Lord Valentine's Castle it's one of the only like books like sci-fi books that has a uh, as a juggler as, as the main thing have you read this book no I haven't no. Okay. and it talks about this one guy this master juggler who manages to juggle three balls blind and it's set up as like just the most amazing trick in the world and he does it by hearing the balls or that's what he says you know he does it by hearing the balls and I'm like this is, this is rubbish you know I can I can juggle blind I can juggle deaf and dumb and it's nothing to do with feet, like hearing the balls as they go through the air as it sets it up in this book but I wasn't sure if that was just a performance technique it's like okay everyone has to be completely utterly silent for me to be able to juggle three balls blind maybe I'll actually use that on stage one day yeah yeah it's, I mean blind juggling has always uh, intrigued me in some way I think we uh, two years ago we had a couple of emails going uh, yeah. back and forth about this because um, I, I have seen pictures of people juggling four objects blindly but I'm unaware of, of uh, someone who can sort of sort of constant uh, consistently juggle yeah. five balls blindly I, I would put my money in for for Gatto that he, he'd be able to do that I, I guess but but maybe if he used heavier balls like say if he can get more tactile feedback with the with the because he uses these like 50 gram pinky balls okay but he's used to that tactile feedback oh so yeah of course so uh, so it's it, uh, it doesn't re I th probably if you give him heavier balls he would be worse actually <laughs> because he's, he's he's used to that so he's also attuned to the kind of the kind of pattern of information that 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 the pinky balls give it, give, and I, I've, uh, we also talked about in those emails. I think about blind people learning to juggle, and that I've. Oh yeah, because I actually, I actually, I, I think I met someone, wasn't it? Yeah, I met someone at a party in the UK who uh, who was blind and was learning to juggle. He could see sort of like I don't know what his vision was, but he could sort of see like if it was if it was light outside, or if it was dark outside. That was his, you know, that was his, his quality of vision, and he was learning to juggle three balls. Okay, and, and he could juggle. Or? Uh, yeah, what I actually did was give him some uh, that what uh, what I have is these um, these chain mail balls which do actually make quite a bit of a bit of noise and are quite heavy but aren't that big and when they land on your hand they just stick there straight to your hand and I gave him a set of three of them and he uh, and he was doing okay you know I mean he was getting he was getting runs of 10 catches and for a blind guy learning to juggle I mean that I was really impressed yeah so yeah same here I mean hearing that is it's definitely impressive and uh, I mean, it, it, it does show how how adaptive our whole 
system the whole human body is. I mean, we can adapt to these kinds of things by just switching over to uh, another uh, modality or by, by, by using uh, a smart way of using different balls and stuff. But I was just wondering where his, his he doesn't, certainly doesn't have a gaze-centered like uh, model of jug- or view of juggling because he doesn't have a gaze. So I guess it's like, it's I don't know what he must just purely like you know uh, like feedback based isn't it it's just like okay this worked last time so it's gonna work this time yeah well but but the thing is a lot of as far as i know a lot of blind people people who are blind from birth so they don't have any concept of vision basically so they can never have a a reference frame or a reference point that is related uh, in any way to uh, to a spatial temporal aspect of vision Uh, but it can be of course related to a spatial temporal aspect of hearing now that's for us for us as uh, seeing people uh, is a very hard thing to get how can you yeah sort of relate your juggling pattern to a spatial temporal aspect of this this bats and dolphins they're like yeah i'm right there with you (laughs) exactly so i mean that just that just shows that it's it's possible if you need it and uh, yeah, how it how it can come about? Yeah. It's the second thing, but I mean, it's a no. Because I, I remember, I I decided to learn how to juggle blindfold, and I was actually juggling on a on a on a wooden floor. And I've done this on stage when I blindfolded and juggled on stage because uh, I actually do this as part of a coat routine. I have a hood over my head. And normally, if I drop a ball on the floor, I know where it's dropped because I can feel it through my feet. I can actually feel where the vibrations come from, and I know whereabouts it's dropped on on the ground as well which is it's a very strange thing and i can actually pretty much go not always right there but in the right direction so yeah you don't need you don't always need vision this is by sort of obviously vibrations through the feet so it's it's of course it's sound as well um but i've got a hood over my head and then you know it's maybe a loud audience as well but i don't know yeah like you say it is amazing also one other thing that i just want to quickly talk about i can't remember if you were there on yes you were there it was a convention years and years ago what we're doing was throwing a ball to each other can you remember this we're experimenting with this throwing a ball to each other and one person had a baseball cap on and didn't look up at the ball they just looked at where the other person was looking so they tracked the eye movement of the other person and they could put their hand out and actually catch a ball that somebody else had thrown they they've never even seen the ball but they could put their hand out and catch it so maybe I don't know what the science of that is but it's just there are these interesting experiments or interesting things that you sort of notice with with juggling and throwing and catching which you just think human brains can't adapt to that but they do yeah exactly I mean you're you're amazed every time about how how we adapt to the the situation how we get new solutions often solutions that we we with our uh, yeah conscious conscience yeah cannot come up with so it's oftentimes it's an unconscious solution solution to a problem yeah that's just uh, it's just amazing I mean that that's what that's what fascinates me so much about uh, yeah about the human body and that's why I am a scientist trying to understand a tiny bit of it (laughs) okay so let's let's wrap this thing up because we've been going I said we'll go for about 45 minutes we're, we're coming up to an hour now I guess so uh, let's wrap this up just some final questions and I wrote down here practical applications for, for this research I mean that you do is it to train blind people how to move better you know I mean I'm just I was straight off the top of my head for that thing but you know is there, are there like uh, therapeutic medical therapeutic uh, reasons you're doing this well per- personally my, my, my driving force so to say is, is information I, I, I am I'm working working to understand how just knowledge just knowledge uh, but uh, 
uh, a very good example, I think, of, of the kinds of applications that you might think of is uh, we work with neural network models and we have also a, a, a biomechanical model, so describing the forces and the force generating capacities of the different muscles of an arm. And we have those two models coupled now and we try to understand the full movement on the basis of all the properties in the, in the whole system. And what you can what you can can think of as an application of that kind of the knowledge coming from that kind of research is people who have, uh, for instance, a um, uh, an amp uh, uh, amputees, for instance, who who uh, miss an arm, they get a, a prosthesis with a robotic arm. They are they are already there. They're bionic men. Exactly, they're or women. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the, the thing is, I saw I saw a woman uh, having one. So, and uh, what they do is they actually record the neural uh, neural signals at the n at the endings on the stump, and also they're trying also to record brain activity through a computer to generate better movements of this robotic arm. Another example... Uh, oh, you're saying, so you're, you're catching movements, you're direct, you know, moving your hand to intercept a moving object, you know, this is like just exactly what they're looking for. Well, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is that the knowledge that we generate by understanding basically how, how the brain activity uh, generates the kinds of patterns of uh, patterns of, of motor commands for for an arm movement it may very be very helpful to use that kind of model I'm not saying that they, they should use my model but the, the kind of the kind of model instead of like a, a mathematically optimal uh, uh, model which is what they often do uh, to generate uh, uh, control signals for this robotic arm on the basis of the recordings in the brain uh, th and that's I think uh, the most direct application I can think of but do you, do your findings actually make people better jugglers? I mean, the, the, all, the conclusions that we've come to, you know, to like where we look in the pattern and how much, you know, the, the background information. If, you go, if you're juggling against a white wall and you're juggling against a wall with patterns on, you know, of course, it's a, a better practice area will have, you know, corners, you know, things to look at in the background rather than just be a completely white, empty room. Uh, so do you think you will eventually lead to, to creating a, a good juggling technique or a a good way of practicing or things to focus on while you're practicing well i i'm not sure yet but w w the applications of, of of the scientific aspects of what we're doing are mostly i think in, in in practice indeed so mostly how do you practice how do how how do you train what is the better way to train and understanding basically the coordination of the hand movement yeah. movement itself i think it, it's it's too too much detail to yeah. to fine grained yeah. to to provide uh, yeah insights into uh, and also um, uh, advices for for jugglers i don't know because uh, we've also had examples at my faculty of people really focusing in on small aspects and they come up with a, a revolutionary thing in ice skating um, uh, maybe you've, you've seen it on TV the, the speed skating uh. oh yeah yeah okay like yeah we were at Olympic site here at the EJC yeah exactly so in, in 1997 I think uh, it was introduced in the in the yeah, skating community uh, uh, that uh, a skate which has has an hinge at the at the front which has the blade Coming loose, coming loose from the from the the shoe, basically. So it so it sort of dangles down a bit. And uh, well, there is a there there is a spring involved, so it comes back again. But but what what happens is that they uh, the skaters can then push off, and and the skate will still be in contact with the ice. Uh, and then and the, the guy that did this uh, is a professor. At, was a professor at my faculty. He's now uh, he, he deceased. Yeah.
but yeah, he came across uh, this uh, this idea basically. Yeah, why? He was analyzing fine grained the movements of these skaters, and he, he saw, hey, they're they're letting go of the ice way early, way too early. Why do they do this? Oh, so you're saying that when you if you push your foot, you know, like when you're skating, you sort of push your foot backwards and sideways, and then you lift your foot off. Your foot still keeps moving in that direction for a while. And it's yeah. not in contact with the ice in the regular skate. So the yeah. skates with the blade fixed to the to the shoe, basically. Yeah. But with but with this hinge on, it's like wait, you get another you get another joint, don't you? You've got your top of your leg, the bottom of your leg, your foot, and then you've got an extra an extra point that keeps then you know can keep it in contact with the ice and push further. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, if you look at the the world records in ice skating, yeah, really overnight. I mean, uh, once within uh, three months, everybody started using these skates. Of course, it depends a bit on when the big championships are yeah. that the records are broken. But I mean, it's an improvement. It's unbelievable. I mean. Really, like so, it's that measurable that everyone. If you weren't using these skates, you couldn't keep up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like ultimate doping. I mean, it's, yeah, there's no doping that can 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 improve on the on this skate. I mean, it's it's really that big. So maybe we're thinking maybe in because I, mean, I guess uh, juggling is is isn't as as developed. You know, there's not the equipment manufacturers really developing juggling clubs and balls and rings at the same pace as they're creating sporting equipment. So uh, maybe we won't see that. Well, but ice skating is not a very speed skating is not a very big sport. I mean, so but in in Holland actually it's, it is a big sport. I mean. It's uh, basically our national sport I would say but um, uh, yeah and I guess that when the Dutch team got hold of this first boot that was uh, that was developed you know with about from you you know you say this professor at your university they they broke all the records first did they uh, yeah they did <laughs> <laughs> well that's cool so maybe you know no practical applications for juggling or not that many because it's a bit too too much in detail but you know we get there in the future maybe yeah and also I think uh, another uh, application not so much of the uh, of the scientific aspect of the movement itself we get a, b- a bit back to the uh, to the juggling patterns is uh, well you know probably what I'm going to talk about my professor did his, his thesis on juggling dynamics and my other colleague did her thesis on polyrhythmic tapping so the the tapping of, of rhythms basically. Oh, and lately, of course, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion in uh, two years ago or so. We I started out generating all kinds of new patterns that that integrate these two things. So polyrhythmic or multi-frequency juggling, and yeah, that that is a new a new thing that that got into juggling. But it's it's not due to the science basically that I can can bring this in here. But uh, it was due to the fact that they were combining this. I thought, hey, maybe they were doing this. So maybe I thought maybe uh, I can combine that uh, that thing. Okay, so I think that's that's. I think we've just co- covered all of the points that I have down here in my in my notes, Yo. So um, I think uh, anything. Last thing that you want to say, maybe a conclusion to wrap it up uh, about you know using science, the scientific method um, in juggling in the theory and the practice. Yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of things, and uh, what the conclusion would be, I, I think, is that uh, my work, I focus on very small things, very, very detailed things, and the applications of, of that kind of thing either are far away, we don't know yet, or people may, may grasp something out of it and, uh, and think, hey, I, I, that, that relates to how I do things, and I can use that, or, or I, I can apply that. But yeah, that's, 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 I, I cannot give any big advice or, or so on that. And with respect to training in juggling, I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think uh, the, sci- the science of training of juggling is 
pretty much absent. So there's there's no real uh, work on juggling uh, in, in training. Um, but it's also related to the fact there's just not <laughs> very much people really wanting to train to become a, a very good juggler. And It's not like with sports where you know the, the best team wins the most money, so then there's a real incentive to actually put, put a lot of money into finding exactly the best way of training because, hey, people in the end just want to see eating the apple on stage. Exactly. Um, I would say 90% or even 99% uh, of the people who are here at EJC are just here for fun. I mean, I've almost not juggled, which is also related to an injury, but... I mean, I'm having a lot of fun, so uh, yeah. That's uh, that's for me. That's what it's about in in the end. I think it's also the best way to become a good juggler when you have fun. Yeah. So maybe that is the science of juggling: is have fun doing it, and you'll get better quicker. I don't know. So uh, yeah, I, uh, m my conclusion from this would be is that you know I like to think of things in a in a in a rational way and in not so much a scientific way, but. I again I would suggest that if you if you hear some advice don't just go oh this advice it must be right actually look at the reasons behind it that's all I'd say you know look at the the logic behind it and when someone say oh you should do it this way think okay why why should I do it that way you know actually when you when you're juggling use your brain I think is is probably the way that I'd, I'd where I'd wrap up this podcast even though like I say the the things that your studies may not have direct um, influence uh, in your training technique but it may understand it may let you understand you know why you're good at one things or some environments are better for others and maybe when you're listening to music maybe that's not a good thing to do in some juggling patterns whereas listening to music and other juggling patterns maybe that is the best thing I don't know so uh, I guess the the uh, the evidence we still got to get the evidence in on some of these things. So, like I say, I've had a lot of fun. I could have gone on longer if we had more stuff to talk about, but I don't think we, I don't think we should because we've gone over an hour already. Yeah, well, yeah, that that's it. I think. I mean, uh, we, I, I like talking about these things. We could be sitting here tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, still doing. It. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks a lot, Yosi. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, thank you. It was nice.